Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode 18, Hogs of War. Call it worms in 3D would be overly simplistic, and maybe even flat out wrong. Hogs of War was its own breed of madness, perhaps not a world, but at least a county apart from its most obvious influence, Worms. That best-selling artillery franchise by Team 17 where cute anthropomorphized filer blow each other to bits with zany weapons and snappy one-liners. Hogs of War was its own thing. Partly because it's got so much real-time strategy in it, conceptually speaking, and partly also because for such a light-hearted game, it's actually quite dark and cynical. Armies on the march. A world divided. The threat of attack from the land, the sea, and the air. It takes the First World War, that most bleak and wasteful of global conflicts, masked by noble intentions of a war to end all wars, and it satirizes it. Oh, Sunday roast this week. While the soldiers are in the thick of it, back home there's plenty of work to go around, like making high-explosive bombs, anti-tank bombs, and making other bombs. It calls attention to the folly and the misplaced bravado of war, not unlike the final season of its creator's favorite TV series, Blackadder. Through ultimately pointless skirmishes and human peak sacrifices of politically motivated war. But before I say more on what Hogs of War is and isn't, and why I think it's such an underrated gem from the PlayStation 1 era, I want to put it in proper context. So let's go back to the beginning. Well, what are you waiting for then? Our story starts in 1996. The camp over-the-top sci-fi real-time strategy game Command & Conquer ruled the charts all around the world, though Worms was right up there with it. And real-time strategy was the games industry's favourite new genre. The hot thing everyone wanted, kind of like Battle Royale games today. There were dozens of titles entering production, most aping on either Command & Conquer's sci-fi bent or Warcraft's fantasy stylings. And the long-running British games company Gremlin Interactive, wanted a slice of that pie. Specifically, they thought they'd do their own spin on Command & Conquer. With pigs. Why pigs? There's apparently some disagreement on this. But lead programmer Jake Habgood remembers it coming from Gremlin founder Ian Stewart, who, legend has it, saw the hit movie Babe, and then said in a marketing meeting that they should be making games about pigs. Because people like pigs. Anyway, one way or another, they ended up with a design document that described warring pig nations battling for control over a highly coveted, rare, oil-like resource called Swill, a not-so-subtle, very tongue-in-cheek nod 
to June's spice and command and conquer's Tiberium that's deposited in large quantities in the island nations of Saustralasia. Control the swill, and you'll control the world. And to get there, you've got to work your way across a risk-style map, region by region, in ham-fisted skirmishes against other picky nations that serve as pantastic, exaggerated facsimiles of six major real-world countries. Does that mean me? Hey, come on then. You had Tommy's Trotters, Piggy Stroika, Sauerkrauts, Sushi Swine, Garlic Grunts, and Uncle Ham's Hogs. I'll leave it to you to guess who's who. They went through dozens of iterations of the core game design, and as development progressed, Hogs of War would evolve from real-time strategy to more of a turn-based tactics hybrid, with elements of artillery games like Worms and Smithereens, where the goal is less to tactically outwit your foes than it is to simply take turns attempting to blow them up with well-aimed projectiles. And in a nod to the explosive death scenes from Worms, in Hogs of War, any deceased pig would utter a final line and then go out in a poof of black smoke, only their indestructible black boots to remain. Oh man, I'm just winded. Somewhere in the midst of all those iterations, however, the team lost sight of what made their concept great. At one point they had a game with tall human-like pigs that were more scary than cute, with ugly graphics even by the PlayStation 1 standards, and everything running far too slow. Gremlins management looked at it and suggested maybe they cut their losses, that they cancel the project. But the team insisted they could pull it together, and they took drastic action to save their bacon. They ripped all the pigs out of the game, replaced them with boxes, and made a new prototype. They called this Cubes of War. It was actually really great fun. So they got clearance to continue. Not with boxes, of course. They were never going to push on with the game being about warring boxes, as much as I think that would have been cool. So they then redid the pig graphics to make them more cuter and friendlier. Now, the pig and environment graphics still looked much more functional than attractive, but at least they would match the game's satirical tone. The slowness problem was more of a head-scratcher, though. They knew exactly what caused it. It was the draw distance. But the obvious solution wasn't an option. Because they were dead set on allowing you to see far across the map, to spot enemy pigs that you might want to take out with a sniper or a mortar shell, or conversely to try and hide from their snipers or their heavy infantry. If you look carefully at the PS1 games library, you'll see that this sort of thing was super rare. The PlayStation was designed for games with 3D graphics, but its actual capacity to put lots of polygons on the screen was sorely limited. Which is why so many games used fog effects. It was a practical, elegant way to hide that constant pop-in at the edges of the screen when the hardware lacked the oomph to keep up, but with a compromise on the number of pigs they'd have in play and a simplification of the 3D piggy models to cut down on polygon rendering, the Hogs of War team squeezed out just enough performance gains to make their plan work, 
to let you have that map-wide viewing distance at an acceptable frame rate without any pesky fog getting in the way. Other things changed as well. The interface got rejigged to better fit with an ever-evolving design that progressively moved further and further from its real-time strategy origins. And late in development, they had a change in lead design from Adrian Carlos, who had written the original design document, to Phil Wilson, who would tweak and polish all the levels and mercilessly cut anything that didn't benefit the player experience. And a big part of these tweaks was making it more fun to play with friends. Because by 1998-99, when they were finishing up on development, their focus on Hogs of War had shifted from single-player to multiplayer. In an interview with the Retro Hour podcast crew, programmer Jake Habgood said the multiplayer mode, which had procedurally generated random maps and allowed for up to four human players to battle it out, is what really got people behind the scenes. In a familiar story to anyone who's ever heard about the origins of pretty much any successful multiplayer game, every day the team would work on the game, all day long. Then they'd go to Phil Wilson's house and play the multiplayer mode late into the night. Then they'd repeat this again the next day, and the next, and the next. They were aided by an unexpected source. Gremlin Interactive was a publicly traded company. And as all this Hogs of War development was going on, there was this whole other drama with the French entertainment giant Infogrames. Infogrames was aggressively expanding its video game business through company acquisitions, and Gremlin had landed in its sights. The French company swallowed Gremlin whole for £24 million, but the change in ownership caused huge operational and financial chaos at the British developer-publisher. And this was a blessing in disguise for the Hogs of War team because not only did it grant them more time to work on their game, but also when the takeover finally went through, Infogrames got right behind them. The new publishing reps loved its humour and they wanted to get well-known comedians involved. But being a French company, they only had people in mind for the French version. For the English language release, they sought suggestions from the team. Jake Habgood pushed for Stephen Fry, but marketing, for whatever reason, ended up making a deal with comedy actor Rick Mayle, best known for co-writing and co-starring in anti-establishment sitcom The Young Ones. He was a great stylistic fit, given that the Hogs of War team had been heavily influenced by other silly, dark, anti-establishment comedy series like Blackadder and Monty Python. And Rick Mayall's job was to provide voice characterizations in the short training film parodies and cutscene videos that played before some missions. And as soldiers, our job is to fight, destroy, with guns and bombs and knives and, and with your bare hands. And also the voices for some of the pigs in the game itself. Each of the six piggy nations had eight pigs, five of which could be involved in a mission or multiplayer battle. And these pigs all spoke with a range of different regional accents and inflections, exaggerated to the extreme, of course, for comic effect. And riffing on stereotypes as well. So you'd have snooty, arrogant French pigs, a mix of posh and cockney-styled English pigs, 
redneck American pigs, sausage-loving and belligerent imperial German pigs, and so on. And it was hard not to smirk at soldier names like Hair Gel and Joey Bob, or at death lines like This Is All Your Fault, Mr. So-Called Capitaine. Although the characterizations did go too far at times. Yes, sir. The planets are auspicious for this activity. Stepping into slightly offensive, xenophobic territory rather than the intended tone, which was to take the piss out of each country. But this clearly wasn't a problem for the game-buying public of the time. Hogs of War sank like a rock in America, sure. But the going wisdom was that that's more because parody and pastiche don't really translate well to American audiences, as has been well established by the mixed reputation that Monty Python has there and by the bizarrely earnest and tone-deaf response that Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers and Robocop films got from American critics. But I digress. Hogs of War was actually a hit in PAL territories. In Germany especially, where it stood at number one in the sales charts for ten weeks, Perhaps because, as I've read, the game was properly localised in each country, which means that those comic stereotypes were different in English versus German versus French versus Spanish. Because we all have different views on our own culture and those of other nations. We all have our own versions of the stereotypes. I'm sure also that a major component of the game's success in Europe was its quality. There's a lot more going on in Hogs of War than you might think at a cursory glance. The humour and the design were kind of interwoven with each other, and both were layered with a degree of nuance that surprised me when I went back to play it again for the podcast. I'll explain what I mean by that right after this short break. Every episode of The Life and Times of Video Games takes a huge amount of effort and at least 15 to 20 hours to create, sometimes much more. So if you like the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. It helps me carve out more time to make new episodes, and it gets you some bonus stuff, like backer-only sound bites and research notes, plus episode transcripts. So please, if you can afford it, go to lifeandtimes.games/patreon and choose your reward tier. And I know a lot of you listen to the show in Overcast, and if you do, it'd also be a huge help to me if you could add a star to your favourite episodes to recommend them to other Overcast users. That way I'll have a chance of getting a featured podcast slot in the app. And if you could take a moment to review the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app, that would be swell too. It can make a surprisingly big difference in getting more people to listen. Now let's continue right where we left off, on how the design and humour of Hogs of War play off each other. Right from the start of the game, as you worked your way through the bootcamp tutorial, Hogs of War made itself abundantly clear that this was not a game that took itself seriously. And as you got deeper into the missions, this cheeky vibe would stay with you. The Commander General, I.P. Grimley, that omniscient soul that he is, would always be on hand to berate you for your ineptitude. Any more deaths and I'll have your guts for garters! While the pigs themselves were full of life. But there were darker undertones at play here. 
There's a school of thought in game design that the best game mechanics serve as metaphors. The medium is the message, if you will. And in games it's considered all well and good to have deep storylines and vivid environments, but they count for little if the act of actually playing the game doesn't expand on that world design. And here, in Hogs of War, I think there's plenty of that gameplay as metaphor on offer. It's coursing through the entire design, right down to the core of the systems that make the game tick. War is in many ways an exercise in tactical efficiency, the victor being the side that more efficiently uses its personnel and their arsenal of weaponry to destroy their foes. And so it is here that efficiency is prized above all. Efficiency in propelling an enemy pig from a hilltop into a minefield, or the water, for extra damage, and in hitting multiple targets with a single attack, or in snapping up all the health and weapon crates around the map before anyone else can get them, and hiding in an armoured bunker until they use up all their mortar shells trying to kill you. Or in pickpocketing the best enemy troops' best weapons before they can use them. Or even in a suicide attack that finishes off the enemy when they looked set to wipe you out instead. Whatever it takes, if it gives you an edge, though preferably without losing any of your higher ranked troops along the way, because training elite pigs is expensive and hence inefficient. Hogs of War is a game about destroying an enemy, then by any means necessary, and with minimal casualties, in exchange for medals. Know your enemy. He may look just like you, an ordinary fellow doing his best to win the war. But look again. A cross-section of the enemy brain. Small, isn't it? But don't let that fool you. He's a crafty devil. You start the game with a squad of eight pigs. They're all rookies. Recruits. And it's your job to whip them into shape, to guide them through the ranks through any of four classes, medic, heavy infantry, espionage or engineer. And you do this with medals. One medal upgrades one rookie pig from the grunt class to the most basic level of one of those specialist classes, which grants him new equipment like a bazooka or healing hands or a disguise to hide with and new abilities such as seeing where mines are located or being invisible on the map. Then two medals will upgrade that pig to the second level of his class, and then three, and so on. Medals are given for completing a mission, with a bonus if you can complete certain additional tasks, like finishing without losing a pig. The game is merciful when it comes to the death of your pigs in that they're not necessarily dead, permanently speaking, if they die in battle. It's not until a pig is killed in action three times that they really, truly die. They're gone, they're upgrades in tow, and in their place you get a generic new recruit. Another grunt, only without the courtesy of a name. Merely an incremental identifier, draft one, draft two, draft three. It's factory warfare at its most deeply cynical. Every part interchangeable, every soldier replaceable. And it's hinted at the very moment you turn on the game. 
with an introductory movie that cheerfully describes life on the home front. So let's make the most of it. That's the ticket. And remember, lads, a war is won at home and not just on the battlefield. There is no excuse for malingering. With any luck, it should all have blown over by Christmas. And there's plenty more satire where that came from. Your hogs, what with their bare minimum of training, will cower and whimper at the sight of an enemy bearing down on them. And they're utterly pathetic at aiming their weapons. So you're forced to grapple with constantly swaying crosshairs on rifle and pistol and sniper shots. And to pretty much just guess the approximate trajectory and power needed for any kind of projectile explosives. Plus your medics can shoot their allies to heal them. And every victory is met with a very much on-the-nose newspaper headline back home. Enemy given a proper seeing too. One such headline reads, tea and cake in the officer's mess. Another one boasts foreigners crushed by brilliant general, with a promise that the war will be over soon. And that's an early mission. And each time a photo sits alongside the headline, not showing the bruising realities of your conquests, but rather a happy unblemished pig in uniform. Because war must be presented cheerily, to keep things happy on the home fronts. Which brings me to one final bit of satire that I want to touch on. And I'll flag this with a spoiler warning for anyone who's planning on playing through the story for the first time after this. Skip ahead around a minute or so if you don't want to know anything about the ending. It may be the game's raison d'etre. You've bumbled your way through 25 missions with heavy casualties and haunting visions of masses of overcooked swine, battlefields littered with empty black boots and unexploded landmines, and your timid little pig from the introduction returns to his country, not to a hero's welcome or any kind of grandeur, but rather to a destroyed home, a destroyed relationship, and no possible hope of employment. But on the bright side, there's always another war around the corner. There'll be plenty more enemies to fight, whoever they may be. The soldier has war in his blood. If we can't find a war, we'll bloody well start one. That's their spirit. So long as the politicians can create a pointless argument somewhere in the world, there'll be a pointless war for us to fight. No stockpiled weapons will go to waste. Rest assured, we'll be sharing this arsenal with all manner of new and unsavory enemies across this world of ours. Good luck, lad. In a postscript to that story, Hogs of War was always meant to get a sequel, but it fell victim to the realities of the early 2000s console video game industry, where unless you were making a FIFA competitor or a niche Japanese game, you needed the US market. North American sales were just too important to ignore, no matter how well loved your game was in Europe. So sadly, the world never got to see Hogs of War 2, The Buns of Navaroon, a Dirty Dozen-inspired strategic adventure where prison-hardened pigs with big personalities took on dangerous missions. A sequel that would have fixed its predecessor's most glaring design problem, that these rookie pigs that you guided through the war didn't have their upgrade paths affected by any innate physical or mental attributes. Although you could argue that that just adds to my factory warfare point. Instead, the team went their separate ways, 
Programmer Paul Tapper took the lead in coding Team 17's venture into 3D, Worms 3D. A decent but perhaps ill-advised move for a franchise that has since doubled down on its two-dimensional roots. Aide Carlos, who, remember, was responsible for the original design doc, would work next as a co-designer of the strategy sim Republic the Revolution. While designer Phil Wilson would go on to serve as producer on critically acclaimed open-world action game Crackdown. And Jake Habgood went into teaching the next generation of game makers. With Hogs of War as one of his teaching aids, where one group of students recently took it upon themselves to get the original games engine working on a PlayStation 4, albeit just as a student project. So there's still a glimmer of hope for fans of crackling puns and war-weary swine that these hogs might one day march into battle again. But even if they don't, these pigs can rest easy knowing that they've had their day. They fought with valour and good humour at the absurdity of it all. And they were remarkably endearing in their blundering, pun-filled, bacon-making brush with death. And I think they made their point rather elegantly that war tends to serve little good other than to pave the way for more war. God, he'd be a soldier. The Life and Times of Video Games is made entirely by me, Richard Moss, including all music and sound effects except for the bits that came from the game and you can probably guess which those are. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd appreciate your support. You can help by sharing your favourite episodes with friends or on social media, or by leaving a review in your preferred podcast app, or by making a donation. I'll happily take one-off donations via paypal.me slash mossrc and monthly recurring donations on Patreon at lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon where you can get perks like full episode transcripts, bonus interviews and sound bites and research notes with access to all of my source material. I'd like to extend a huge thanks to everyone who's supported me so far, but especially to my producer-level backers, Seth Robinson, Vivek Mohan, Wade Trugaskis and Simon Moss. You can also follow the show on YouTube and Instagram, as well as Twitter, on the Life and Times VG handle, where I'm trying to post a bit more often. And as always, you can find show notes and past episodes and everything else at the website lifeandtimes.games. Until next time, my name is Richard Moss, and this was the Life and Times of Video Games. Thanks for listening. See ya. Thank you, I have finished.